Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II podcast. And we are back live after the holidays and another day. And it seems like we've been gone away for a long, long time. But don't worry, we are back. Henry, what's going on, fella? There's just no substitute for doing it live, is there? I mean, it, it, it's like this. We'll do immediacy, it live. The sense of immediacy that, I mean, the tape stuff is cool because you can add your studio genius, which you always do. But you know, when you're live, man, there's just that immediate that, connection, I guess. No, that but you have that you have that sense of um, anticipation, the the thought, the knowing that at any moment, any gift, any time, someone's train could just roll off the track, fall onto the side of the train, just burst in the fire, and the entire show can come to a screeching halt and result in dead air. That is what we want to avoid. But uh, to, to answer your question, I'm, I'm uh, doing good, you know, just uh, happy to be a part as always. Doing all right? You? You're getting good grades? Your future's so bright, you got to... You gotta wear yeah, shades. Gotta wear shades. Yeah. God, that, that that's like music from your prime. You know, I, <laughs> this is gonna start a fight, but I don't care. I'm here for it because I've had a bad week. I've often thought about people like you who went through your prime through the '80s, and I got thought, God, those poor bastards. Their music sucked. Boy, start a fight with me, you mean, or or with <laughs> Just whoever's the people of that generation. You know, you and your ilk. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, you gotta admit that the 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 rock. The rock music of the '90s, which is when I was in high school, is far superior than anything you could have pushed out in the '80s, with I, the I, with the exception of like Anthrax and Iron Maiden. But overall, I will say that the music of the '90s is like the good alt rock is some of my favorite. Okay, I, I absolutely agree. But Don, you and I've talked enough. You know, music is a real passion of mine. I mean, I never played in a band like you did, but man, come on, there's something about some of the 80s music i mean look you had of course now some of these are timeless bands so i don't see them as quote unquote 80s okay music but acdc the stones led zeppelin leonard skinnard some could argue those are all 70s bands but continue. well you could well no you could i mean Pink Floyd, i'm thinking I mean, more sure. like flock of seagulls and just like the top 40 okay. nonsense. Well, <laughs> never never been a flock of seagulls fan i will i will definitely give you that dancing in the amadeus in your middle school dance, I actually hated that <laughs> song. But uh, isn't it funny though I, how there's certain songs you can, speaking of history, certain songs you can say and you you go back to like for example me Amadeus. I think the first time I heard that song, I was in my back my parents' minivan in elementary school on our way to Clearwater, Florida for spring break. Really? Yeah, it's weird how songs affect your memory and take you straight back to a particular place well, in time. So now here here's a I think a quintessential 80s song sister christian night ranger okay okay actually really i will tell you that night ranger those guys are big world war ii airplane buffs i read that on wikipedia um uh, the aforementioned lead singer of iron maiden well, Bruce Dickinson. That, now what what's dickinson yeah bruce dickinson yep he's he is actually a pilot yeah. he flies their own airplane yep but to get back to night Ranger, so sister christian that song, which I actually really do like, but that's one of those anthemic songs that, to what you talk about, that takes me to packing up my car, getting ready to go to Auburn University for the first time. And a, and a teary-eyed uh, Eugene Sledge at the door watching his youngest boy uh, motor off into the distance. 
Yeah, well, I don't know that he was teary-eyed. But, <laughs> Probably like, good. Know. One less mouth to feed. <laughs> yeah, well, I was the last one out, but... Um, I was, too. It's funny how that works. Like, you know, by then, they're just, yeah, we've we've been down this road before. <laughs> Fair to well. Yeah. <laughs> don't let the door hit you. Yeah. Yeah. How Call old... me every now and then. I, well, you know, I mean, to, to contextualize that as far as... So, now, I, I started college in 83, but I went to University of Montevallo where my dad taught because I could go free. Ooh, legacy. And then went transferred to Auburn, you know, for my last couple of years. But so it was like 85, I guess it's fall of 86 when I got to Auburn. But so with the old breed had been out for like five years at that point. Okay. Which is kind of an interesting. Yeah. Kind of an interesting thought. I remember I had a, like one of my senior level political science classes. It was a Marine officer in that class. I guess he was affiliated with Marine ROTC at Auburn at that time. And I remember asking him, you know, I started because I've always said I felt a kinship. I just felt a sense of brotherhood with guys who are in the Eagle Globe and Anchor. I just always have. And I would always want to talk to these guys and just, if nothing else, just greet them and, you know. Sure make some kind of sense of contact with him, but this guy wasn't real friendly, but I remember asking him if he had heard of a book called with the old breed. I was, so, you know, my dad was first Marine division, you know, something like this trying to break the ice. And he, I seem to recall, he acted like he'd heard of it in the damn thing. It only been out like five years at that point. I was going to ask you when, when was the first time you independent of your father, meaning not next to your dad at a reunion, but just going about your daily life whether it's meeting an academic, a teacher, a random person in the library somewhere, when mm-hmm. do you remember the first time someone recognized your last name because of your father's book? Um, now, that's that would be not from back in those days. I mean, that happens actually a lot. I can give you some great anecdotes on that, which I'm, that's not what we're here to talk about tonight. But, I mean, I, I well, do have Anytime you and I are together, we just throw shit at the wall and see what sticks. I, I, no, I know, and I love let's start, it. I let's love get it. to flinging because as of so far, no one has emailed us and mail call at WTSPWorldWar2.com said, hey, would the two of you knock it off whenever Jeff's gone? Jeff is the taskmaster. He keeps us on task whenever he's away. The mice come out to play. But we have not gotten an email from anybody yet telling us to knock it off, so we no, shall proceed until email comes in. No, that's good <laughs> stuff. So, um, well, here not too long within the last year, we was actually when my mom was still alive. She and she was pretty sick. We'd been over to visit her, so this would have been last summer. And Andrea and I were headed home, and Jack was in the car with us. And it's late. She, you know, we're exhausted. We've been dealing with my mom's situation, and, and so Andrea's like, "Can we just stop and get a pizza? Let's do that." So we go to a Domino's, just like 15, 10, 15 minutes from the house here. Yep. And I'm <clears throat> I'm in the car on the phone. I may have been talking to Layton or somebody. Hell, I may have been talking to you. I don't remember, but I was on the phone with somebody. She goes in to get the pizza. She's in there for quite a bit. <clears throat> and then she comes back out and goes, hey, this guy, this young man working here wants to meet you. Very cool. So I, I get off the phone. I, she introduces me to the guy. The guy's a huge fan of my dad yeah. and read with the old breed and all that. So, But she said when she went in there, she gave her name and all that, and this young man said, well, you wouldn't by chance be related to that famous guy who was a Marine in World War II. She said, you mean Eugene Sledge? He said, oh, yes, ma'am. And she said he was my father-in-law. She said, you want to meet his son? He's out there in that car right there on the phone. That's awesome. So, so you know, yes, yeah, stuff. I mean, it, it happens. 
And it's uh, to me, it's even cooler when that happens when your kids are around to experience it. Yes. Well, it's happened to Jack. Yeah. It's oh, happened sure. to him. I mean, he, he had, he's had adults. And then he's obviously, he's not into this like we are, of course, because he's 14 going yeah, He's not 15. 35 yet. Yeah. Me no, he's, or two. he's racing Enduro mountain bikes. That's all he cares about. He's actually hey, in New God York. I love it, moment. man. You have the one. You have the one sixteen-year-old who'd rather be outside on a bike instead of sitting inside on a virtual well, bike 14. and Xbox. Well, same difference. He's going to be fifteen in ten days. But yeah, no, man, he's. I, I can't complain to this. So he, this trip he's on in New York, is uh, actually it was an invitation-only thing, and so a small group from his middle school. Uh, it's kids who are known to have good grades, good comportment, good reputation. You know, stay out of trouble, and <clears throat> they. This this, te- this teacher will invite certain kids to be in this group, and then he'll take them to like New York or Philadelphia. And this year it was New York, and Jack got asked to go, and and so uh, he went, and um, so that's cool. But um, he'll be home tomorrow night. But but yeah, that's happened to him. I mean, people have uh, recognized the name and said, "Are you related to Eugene Sledge?" or you know something like yeah, that. Yeah, because it's not exactly the most common of uh-huh. names. Correct. Yeah. It's not like a Jones or a Smith. Hell, even Abernathy is more common than you would think. I was about to say, what What do you... Uh, my first experience with the famous version of Abernathy, not me, uh, first and foremost as a little kid, uh, Professor Abernathy on Chili Willy. Can't forget him. He's hardcore. Hawkeye, G.I. Joe, the real American hero. Yeah. If you actually look at the back of the card for the toy, which no one pointed this out to me as a kid, his... His real name, last name's Abernathy, mm-hmm. and then um, Robert uh, Robert Andor Bob Abernathy was actually the best friend of Martin Luther King. Not no relation, just same last name. He's mm-hmm. he's the um, taller white gentleman you see in a lot of the marching photos. Stand next to MLK, and then like if you were to Google Don Abernathy, thinking you're going to find me, no, you're going to find a very famous screenwriter out in Hollywood who's currently actively writing screenplays and acting and <laughs> and stuff. So. <laughs> There's quite a, and um, when I right after outside of high school, um, kind of flows in with this. We all know that Ross from Friends played in Band of Brothers. He played oh, yeah. he played a character in a movie called The Paul Bear, where the person who died in the movie's last name was Abernathy. So it it pops up from here and there every once in a while, and it popped up yeah. on an old episode of Murphy Brown back in the day. <laughs> there you go. There's some history. When's the last time anybody's dropped the name Murphy Brown on you? <laughs> I was about to say, man, that, that was a shot out of nowhere. We go way back. Um, since we're not quite in the topic yet, we're going to get in the topic. Can I just get something off my chest? Uh, you ever had one of those situations where you're just like, the world is out to get me? Yes. Or more importantly... Pretty frequently. More importantly, the automobile gods are dumping their tool bag upon my head. Mm. So you guys know I, I dealt with a hurricane about almost a year ago. And recently, we got a roof repaired that had some insurance deductibles involved. And both my cars need to be completely repainted. Both of them need new windshields, new side windows, dents. They just got annihilated with airborne debris from the hurricane. So back in May, March, no, April, April, I dropped off the Volkswagen. I just said, okay, I want to stack them. Send them to the Volkswagen for one. Take them 30 days. I'll get my other one back. I can kind of check out the quality of work on the Volkswagen. It sucks. Is the Volkswagen carries? Yes. Okay. It's a 2018. We bought out the lease because when the lease was up, we went to the lot and they had nothing except for like seventy thousand dollar SUVs we weren't interested in. <laughs> so, but the plan was 
we know we're going to get rid of the Volkswagen at some point, so let's send it in as the as the uh, pawn. If it comes back with craft the craftsmanship, I won't let them touch my Tundra. <laughs> you know, the one that I'm keeping, the more expensive vehicle. Right. But it, it overlapped. Um, they had the Volkswagen due to parts for 56 days. My rental was only good for 30 days. And then luckily my truck went in at, at the beginning of May. And so we just overlapped from one rental car to the other. Got the Volkswagen back 10 days later. Took the Volkswagen up to get my Tundra. And when I dropped off the Volkswagen to get the Tundra, the reason I dropped off the Volkswagen because I was on my way to somewhere else. I needed tools out of my truck for my work. And it just mm-hmm. so happened to be on the way to the job. So I stopped, got my truck, and uh, I asked him, hey, real quick, on the back of the Volkswagen, when you guys painted the repair, you forgot to blend a little area of oxidation between the new paint and the old paint. Cool. When you leave it here, we'll just fix it. Okay, cool. Get in my truck. Long story short, I start noticing splotches and grease all over the interior of my truck. I'm really trying to make this short story, long story short, just so I can get it off my chest. And mm-hmm. so my sun visor completely covered in like lube grease. I mean, this is cloth headliner, just grease all over the damn place. I'm like, oh. So I called, start complaining to the auto company. I'm on the interstate, got my hands free, phones went through the radio, going ballistic. Uh, they said, yeah, we'll take care of it. As soon as I hang up the phone, I'm in the fast lane, a rock <laughs> flies off of a semi. Hits my brand new windshield, which is why I have grease all over the inside of my car, because whoever reassembled my headliner after pulling my window out, why mm-hmm. do they have to take your window out? Because on Tundra, that has a, all the backup sensors, the radar for cruise control, all that's mounted on the rear view mirror set, so they have to take down the headliner and unplug it and calibrate all that crap. <laughs> Breaks my brand new window. So I literally was in possession of my car for 20 minutes, and my windshield's already broken. No, it's never something. <sighs> so... I go to the job, I come back, I get the key for the Volkswagen, they buffed it out. I told the guy, I said, whoever put my truck together needs punched in the mouth, and I just left. <laughs> so, long story short, yesterday, I, I shoot a video, it's on YouTube, but it's private. I just sent it, rough, rough draft, but it's well re, it's well performed, because I shoot YouTube videos all the time. Just I called up the shop, I said, hey, what's the uh, manager's, um, the shop owner's email address? Because <clears throat> I picked on my truck, to, the work is just chef's kiss they're really going to see this it's going to be out of boys and pizza parties all around i mean i'm just so excited and they gave me their email addresses and i shot that video to them within an hour i had phone calls and messages they basically towed my truck provided me with a rental car so they're they're mm-hmm. fixing the problem problem solved with the exception of the windshield which by the way my insurance don't care so it's going to cost me another deductible but whatever they're going to they're going to repair all the the crap that their guy messed up Get home that day after getting a rental car. <laughs> well, I'm not home yet. And Carrie calls me. Yeah, I want to go k- pick the kid up for the doctor, and uh, the Volkswagen has a flat tire. <laughs> I'm just like, are you kidding me? Oh, Drove all the way home, and there's a three-inch long lanai screen screw in the sidewall of the tire. And I'm just like, it's not one thing. It's the in other. the sidewall of all things. Yeah, right on the edge. I mean, it probably mm-hmm. could put a plug in there, but we were needing to get two new tires anyhow. Because as I said earlier, we we're planning on trading it in, so we only replaced the two front tires. That way, they wouldn't hit us on the lease for brand new high-end tires from Volkswagen. <coughs> but since we couldn't change it out, we ended up keeping it, and so we need to replace the back tires. Anyhow, it's just like brand new car window gets broken. Get my Volkswagen back. Now I got a flat tire. It's just like, can I catch a break here? <laughs> I just got so much other crap going on top of all this, and I have that laying in my lap. That's- 
Which yeah. is well, it always comes at the worst time. And I bring that up to, for you guys because that's why we didn't have a show last night. It was like eight thirty, and I'm changing tires on my driveway, and I'm like, I'm like Henry, there's no way in hell I'm going to get done, get showered, and do show prep and be ready to go. So that's the unforeseen circumstance in which we weren't allowed to do a show yesterday, but life goes on. Well, it and it was fine with me because I was, I had just done my last machine inspection in a, in a place, pretty remote place. It was like a good hour and a half away. I was with another rep and he lived and he doesn't live anywhere near me, but you know, we followed each other to that location. We take care of that machine inspection and then he goes home and I punch in navigation. I had an hour and a half drive to get home. And when you call me, I was still trying to make my way home and I was, I was pretty tired at that point. So it, it worked out okay for me. So, well, and as you said, before we went on, boy, it's summertime. I'm in Florida. You're in Alabama and damn, it's hot. From the YouTube live stream, DJ Bowen said, just wanted to say, glad to see you guys back. And of course, as I'm reading it, okay, glad to see you guys back doing your thing. We'll be listening in the AM. Have a good night, fellas. And for those of you who don't know, for those of you who only listen to us or watch us via the, the video, thank you for that. But on the audible format of this podcast, which is actually how it's intended to be digested, is available on basically every platform that you can get podcasts on, including the off-brands that I didn't even know. Somehow they just find my RSS feed and put it on their platform. So it's anywhere. Just look for WTSP, World War II, or What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast. Um, You know what? Let's go ahead and get this out of the way, because that way when we delve into the topic, we don't have to try to throw the brakes on it to make sure we get all this other stuff in. Um, yeah. As we said earlier, if you get tired of our wild ramblings about non-World War II, you can email us, and or if you want to email us about World War II stuff and tell us how great we are or talk about topics, please do so at mail call at WTSPWorldWar2.com. Jeff usually reads the emails, but he is out tonight, so I will take up the duty and fail miserably, but here we go. Hello, everyone. I'm not sure if you heard the news on Guadalcanal, but a Chinese company has begun to strip the area around the Alligator Creek. The company is saying they are digging a gravel, I'm sorry, digging for gravel for a construction project. The field in and around the Ichi Monument has been stripped of vegetation and the fields have all been dug up. They have set up cement pads, buildings, and equipment to continue to dig up, I'm sorry, to continue digging up gravel. There is a worry. There is worry from many of the Japanese burial pits in the area, possibly the or, uh, possibly of ordnance and other historical artifacts. This is not good. Hoping that tours in the area can continue in the future. We kind of talked about this a few weeks ago with uh, Jared. We as historians, uh, amateur, professional, or, and or otherwise, depending on who you're talking to, we have a lust, a desire, and a love for historical landmarks, historical battlefields, historical places, and would love to see them preserved as much as possible. But when it comes to areas such as some of the areas in the Pacific, the landmass available to the indigenous people or the people who currently live there are such a, such a great premium. You, you kind of, as much as you hate to see it, you kind of understand that it has to be developed at a certain point. And I was about to say, I mean, that begs the question. I mean, it's like when I went to Peleliu, Eric Maylander, my friend who was my guide, it was like his seventh time to go. He had gotten a monument made to go on a tank that was out in the jungle that had been had run over a Japanese aerial bomb 
buried as a, as a mine and it blew it up, killed the guys in the tank. Well, the unit commander, uh, Gill was his name, uh, of that unit, 710th Tank Battalion. It was actually his tank, but he was not on board it when that happened. But he went with us. And where I'm going with this is because Eric wanted to have this plaque honoring Gill and, and the dead members of the crew who did not survive in World War II that, on, on that day. He wanted to put place that plaque on the tank, on that spot in the jungle. Well, the problem was, and the, it is now that it's since got worked out. But, you know, that, that I mean, think about it. Like, to us, that's an iconic historical landmark. For mm-hmm. me, it was cool to walk through the jungle and come upon this burned-out Sherman tank still there and hear the story of what had happened and be there with a guy who whose tank it was. And this, you know, obviously, was 1999. So a lot of World War II vets still with it. But the problem with him placing that plaque, that land was private land. Yeah. You know, that belonged to a local Palauan villager. And you can't just go, you know, like if where you live in Cape Coral, if that was some iconic battle in the Civil War or whatever, you know, maybe in the days of DeSoto or something. I mean, something iconic happened there. People from all over the world can't just troop into your backyard and put a monument up. That land belongs to Don Aberdath. And not only that, but in the case of this Palawan, this wasn't a, a monument of a civil war or a war that had some intrinsic value to the society of the Palawan people. This was a war that was brought upon their property, victimized them. They were stuck in the middle of it. Yes, they were happy the Americans came and, and saved the day, but I'm sure a lot of them are like, why should we continue to be victimized by this war that we didn't want, and now you're wanting to prevent us from possibly getting some prosperity by developing our land? You know, I'm sure a lot of them are like, well, why do we got to keep living this? This wasn't our war. We were, It happened on our soil. We were victims. Yes, we're sure. glad it went this way, but it doesn't have the intrinsic value to us because it wasn't our people dying in masses here other than you know those who were being enslaved and treated horribly i'm sure some people are like hey that was 80 years ago and somebody wants to pay me some money to put a 7-eleven up over here bring the oh, money oh sure well and, and and look man i mean the most important color in the world is green actually it's zeros and ones because most of the countries are going to digital currency and they don't care about the green anymore but well, yeah but you know what i'm speaking uh, yeah absolutely symbolically yeah. metaphorically but oh, to, to go back to the to the sand spit to the where a cheeky colonel a cheeky went across and which beautifully represented in the pacific it's one of my favorite mm-hmm. events of the battle of guadalcanal uh, and incidentally, Richard Frank has dug up research that Ichiki was actually not the Japanese officer's real name. I got to get more on that story, but I don't know. I've I've read what you just read there, Don. I've heard that. I think I saw Scott Freund post something. It's it's horrible to hear that. I mean, it's I don't know what the Chinese company is trying to do. I, I, it makes me wonder. You Man. know, you would think because that that's a highly populated area right there near not far from where Henderson now, uh, you know, uh, Haniara International Airport is, where you would fly into Guadalcanal, what used to be Henderson Field. But I don't know what their intentions are, what they're trying to do, and if, you know, if they purchased that land from the local Solomon Islander who owned it. They probably did because they've been buying up land all over here. And on the same token, um, somebody sent me an article asking me about this, but it looks like things have changed. I won't read the whole story, just the headline. Solomon Islands uh, Prime Minister rules out China's military base and says Australia is their security partner of choice. So I guess there was a period of time where 
uh, the Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands was considering allowing China to uh, build some bases down there. But he apparently yeah, has... I'm sure the Chinese would have loved to because, <sighs> yeah, you know, they all they got to do is turn the page one of a Pacific War history. But, hey, this is a great place to interrupt the flow of supplies and communication in Australia. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, but but it's it's... I really hate to hear this because, I mean, seeing that spot on Guadalcanal, I mean, there have been like our buddy Dave Holland. Yeah, I need to get his take on this. Oh, we ought to get him on here to talk about it. Reach but, out to him because I have another, yeah, I, I got another letter along the same lines. Um, and the people who sent them these emails didn't know these emails are not up on the website yet, which, by the way, as per uh, suggested by Jeff and Henry, we now have posted the emails, kind of like you would see in a magazine or a newspaper letter to the editor. All the current mail calls you guys send in are located at our website, WTSPWorldWar2.com. Under Contact Us, you'll see the mail call, and um, they're all there, at least the last month or two, and we'll continue to put them up there, especially those that include photos or links to documentation that you guys may find interesting. And so on the same topic, um, this um, do- Donna writes in, I saw on Miltors.com that the U.S. government's department, DOD, are planning to build an advanced training base on Peleliu. If that information is correct, they will destroy the w- the World War II historical sites and restrict visitors from visiting the island and battle sites. Just a thought. would like to know what you guys think. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> yeah, it seems like uh, all the not. property's getting sucked up down there. Huh? Seems like all the property's getting sucked up down there, but once again, when there's only so much property to use and there's strategic strong points down there, I guess somebody's going to want to use them. Well, I had not heard that. Um, I, I, there's some people I'd really like to get their take on it. Um, the you know the Palau Islands certainly have strategic value. I mean, the, the placement of them, the location. I mean, I know we've. It's been endlessly debated about it was, I don't think it's a forgotten battle anymore, but, but it could have been bypass. We all know that, but the, you cannot change the geographical value of where it is. It was a hugely active Japanese Naval Air Force base or Naval Air Base. Um, man, I, that's something I don't care where it is in the world. Somebody is going to take it and try to exploit it be it put a, a hotel for a bunch of damn tourists or natural resources case, that or military a major staging area or what have yeah, you. It's, I mean, you're never going to escape that. You're never going to get out from under that shadow, but I would hate to see that because there's so many, I mean, God, I've had so many people ask me, Oh, would you be interested in going to Peleliu? You know, and I want to go back. And so if you guys are wanting to um, book us, pay for the flight we'll be happy to come so yeah we want to come <laughs> short answer is yes i mean you know i to get back to peleliu there are a lot of things particularly on ingasibus that i'd like to do but um and my friend damon stout who i'm working on the documentary film about vmf 114 and, and major robert stout who was the marine pilot commanding that squadron and they flew close air support for the marines on peleliu uh we you know, we've been talking about trying to get something going as we work on our documentary film. But, you know, people can talk about going back all the time. Who knows when it can actually happen when you throw in your normal life, mm-hmm. and children and bills and career and all that. Yep. But to, it, it would break my heart to think that I would not have the option 
to go and visit. I mean, when I was there, Don, I remember there was a ceremony because a lot of Japanese were there uh, because it was the 55th anniversary in 1999. And I remember meeting this nice gentleman, this nice Palauan Islander, and he was dressed in nice khakis and and a golf shirt. He was the Palauan Minister of Justice. And and I met the president of the Republic of Palau, a very distinguished looking gentleman. And he he was honored to meet me and said, I have your father's book on the coffee table in my office. Wow. You know, I mean, so it, to, to think that you couldn't go back and I don't think Peleliu is as virginal now as it was when I went, but it's still pretty unspoiled. Yeah. I, th- I, st- I think it still would rank pretty high on the scale of being able to see things that you probably wouldn't see on other battlefields. But um, to, to stick to your original reading that email about the, the sand spit where he, Colonel Cheeky went across, uh, God, that's, that it just, uh, it's so painful to hear mm-hmm. that, you know, because that, that's an iconic place in the, in, in the pantheon of Pacific war memorials that I would like to go visit one day. Yeah. Well, I feel bad for doing this because Jeff's not here, but technically we were supposed to do it the last week of May. It is now the second week of June, and that is the long forgotten, not forgotten, just we said we were going to do a drawing at the beginning of May and at the end of May, but with the holidays and us not being here last week, here we are. So real quick, after this, I swear we'll get into the topic that we're going to talk about. We're going to do the drawing for the last winner of the Back in May Patreon giveaway. So uh, this person, which will be drawn from the name of the canteen, is a member of Patreon. If you guys haven't signed up and you want to subscribe, we're going to continue to do giveaways. So um, head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com or D-410.com. Click on Patreon. It's a dollar a month. Because long way to support the show. We're going to do the second half of the giveaway. This is going to be for the Warbirds Coffee uh, 51 Coffee. It's the P51 Mustang. They also get an autographed M block by the three of us. The only, one and only in existence, the first ever and the only existing right now. This was sent, I ordered this as a quality control test. I didn't want to start stickers until I saw one to see what the quality is. It's the same sticker of my shirt. It's the, uh, Good Scuttlebutt was meant to be shared. The only currently existing WTSP sticker version of my shirt. The What's the Scuttlebutt coffee mug? It's green. I'm not going to take it out because it's just going to blend in my background because of the green screen, as well as a couple other WTSP stickers. And this is our way to thank you guys for supporting the show and supporting the channel by signing up for Patreon. And so without any further ado, same canteen that was loaded up from the beginning of May same names, and I'm just gonna get one out of here. Like I said, um, the way I wadded up these papers, they don't like to pop. Out. Oh, there, there goes one. You, you look like Lecky trying to squeeze a drop <laughs> of water out of that canteen the day they get some water. Gotta get some water. Hey, how do they sit this up here without any effing water? Okay. I, <laughs> I swear to God, this is not rigged. You saw me shake this out. And the, well, the winner is Don Abernathy. No, the winner is the, the person who actually commented who's watching us live right now. You saw me shake the hell out of this. This is not rigged at all, I swear to God. Join Patreon back in January 19th of 2023. DJ Bowen, he's a member of the third tier level of the uh, Patreon. 
So, DJ, I will be hitting you up on Patreon tomorrow to make sure we have your current address and we will get this sent out to you guys. I mean, to you. And for us, you guys, uh, we're going to do some more giveaways. So if you haven't done so, head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Sign up and subscribe for Patreon, and that will automatically enter you into the winning. And without any more sidetractions or much to do's about nothing, Henry had a good suggestion for tonight's show, and that is how the increased kamikaze attacks in 1945 caused the Naval Air Command to readjust how the Navy deploys their ships into combat and or patrols on their way to a combat to now protect their assets from this unforeseen weapon that is desperate pilots crashing their planes into your your, your ships. And so, uh, Henry, take it away. Oh, man, you, you lay it on me like I've got this beautiful presentation, which I don't, I must say. But what, what, so it, it's, you, yeah, you said it just, just like I laid it out there for you, Don. I mean, the, the thing that, struck my mind and this came up for me as i'm getting into the latter stages of twilight of the gods which is ian toll's volume three of his trilogy of the pacific war and you know i I, of course naval and marine aviation world war ii has always been a particular area of passion for me but you think about the early carrier battles coral sea midway santa cruz islands battle of eastern solomons um and you think about how an air group on a U.S. aircraft carrier, you you know, you had the Lexington, Saratoga, Wasp, Hornet, uh, Enterprise. They they had, and I'm I'm just going from memory, you know, of an air group. You had pretty much in 1942 an equal number of torpedo bombers, dive bombers, and fighters. And of course, fighters of the day, being the first generation Grumman F4F Wildcat which was absolutely iconic in the air battles of Guadalcanal. It, but it was, in some ways, as we all know, outmatched by the Japanese Zero. But looking at a, at a naval air group, you had pretty much an equal distribution of torpedo bombers, fighter or fighters, and dive bombers. And then as you move on into the latter stages of the war, things were not going in the Japanese favor, we're advancing irreversibly, irrevocably on the Japanese home islands. After Iwo Jima, we now have the capability to have B-29s hitting the Japanese home islands using Iwo Jima as a base. I mean, hell, we put P-51s on Iwo Jima to fly air cover. But the Japanese become desperate. They, They come up, essentially, they begin using the Kamikaze Corps. Um, and I'm not trying to go into a detailed history of the Kamikaze Corps. I want to keep this a two-way conversation, okay, Don? But, you know, it's just interesting to me that as we get past Iwo Jima, U.S. strategy begins to focus on the Philippines, you know. So we're talking January, February, March of 45. We're not yet to, to Okinawa because that was April of 45, but we're, we know we're going to win at that point. There's, we're a juggernaut. We can't be stopped, but we just don't know when we're going to have the Japanese completely, you know, the Japanese threat completely eliminated. We do know that after the Marianas Turkey shoot, which was essentially the battle for the Marianas Islands, 
you know, what, June, July of 44, uh, massive numbers of Japanese aircraft were shot down by U.S. task forces. Um, to look at it from the Marine perspective, we know that Marine aviation was pretty finely developed. By then, the F-4U Corsair, my personal favorite airplane, uh, and that's saying something because I love them all from World War II, but the bugs had pretty well been worked out of the Corsair by late 44, mid to late 44. Uh, it's doing wonderful work as a ground support aircraft, but it was also carrier capable. The Navy was using it, but the Marines, for all of their skill, for all of their excellence, I don't think, and I, I reread Robert Sherrod's book, uh, Marine Aircraft or Marine Fightercraft in World War II, but, um, or History of Marine Aviation by Robert Sherrod. Great book on Marine Air in World War II. Um, I do not believe that until, well, one of the things that got Marine Aviation back onto carriers was to combat the threat of the kamikazes. Uh, the other thing that happened was a repurposing or a reconfiguration of, of naval air groups. I've been talking for a few minutes. Let me let you jump no, in. Go ahead. Um, what are your? Well, I, I was just looking at some of the numbers, and as you were saying, we're kind of with mixed results. But for most of it, up until the Philippines, nineteen forty-five, we were pretty much having a pretty good run at these conflicts above the ocean, these, these naval battles out to sea. And at some point when you have an, two groups of people and one of them is dominating the other or relatively dominating or at least outpacing them, at a certain point the, the, the person being outpaced is going to get backed into a wall. And a lot of times you're backing the wall, you come up with new tactics, whether they're desperate or just not understood by the, 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 the rest of the world. Just think about it from the Navy perspective that, you know, you're, you're sending up these air, these airships, these, these air commands, they're having these dogfights. Obviously, you got torpedo bombers coming after you and, and, you know, airships trying to take you down. But when you have a pilot that has a little bit of self-preservation, they're going to keep their aircraft at least at so much of a distance that they can get out of danger if they need to. But when that game gets changed with the advent or the popularization of kamikazes and the amount of damage their first interaction at this caliber at the about around philippines i'm just going to read this real quick from uh, a navy historical website Japan initiated kamikaze attacks in response to the invasion of the Philippine Islands by the U.S. military forces on October 1944. Although hints about adopting suicide tactics had been picked up before then, their use on a wide scale came as a surprise. The fanatical resolve of Japanese pilots turned their aircraft into human-guided missiles, which struck or damaged 130 U.S. Allied combat vessels during the campaign, sinking 20 and killing at least 1,400 sailors. While the results did not prevent Japan's defeat in the Philippines, they exceeded considerably what the Japanese achieved with orthodoxical air tactics alone. This guaranteed a greater use of kamikazes going forward. The Navy's robust fleet air defense 
capabilities proven overwhelmingly effective against conventional Japanese air attacks, but struggling to cope fully with the kamikaze strikes as the headquarters of the commanders and the chief U.S. fleet stated in April 1945, quote, the suicide attacks represented by far the most difficult anti-aircraft problem yet faced by the fleet. The psychological value of the AA, it, uh, which is past, has driven away a large percentage of potential attacks, is in a, is in a par, I'm sorry, inoperative against a suicide plane. If the plane is not shot down or even severely damaged, that its controls are impaired it's in, almost inevitably going to hit its target. And that's a scary thought, knowing that if, Let me, if we don't shoot this guy down and obliterate him, he's probably going to hit us. Here's what, uh, to kind of dovetail on to what you said, so Ian Toll quotes this guy. Let me, let me read this. A destroyer sailor wrote his wife, I've never in my life seen such a vicious scene as a wicked monster diving a plane straight at me at 200 miles an hour with six wing guns going full blast. It looked as if he was after me personally. Bob Sherrod, who I just talked about, Robert Sherrod, his book, History of Marine Aviation, World War II. Bob Sherrod, a Time Magazine correspondent, noted that American sailors in the Pacific were obsessed with kamikazes and spoke of almost nothing else. Nothing could have been more awesome than to see a human being diving himself and his machine into the enemy, wrote Sherrod. Nobody except the Japanese could have combined such medieval religious fervor with a machine as modern as the airplane. Awesome is a fun adjective used in that because we kind of co-opted that in the 80s and 90s to be oh, awesome as in cool, as mm -hmm. in righteous. Awesome in the format in which he used it, its original context, means to be in awe of or almost in shock of. Just like he's not saying it's an awesome, cool display. It's just like more of a holy hell i'm just in an awe and seeing this happening i'm almost frozen in my tracks and that is insane to think about to, to so when you that. when you encapsulate all of that and think think about a destroyer or destroyer sailor or anybody on a ship because that that was such a tremendous threat going all the way through to the end of the war um now, obviously, it was a zero-sum game because eventually they're going to run out of their, their pilots if they keep stuffing them in cockpits and letting them kill themselves. But it, it presented such an incredible threat. So everybody, you know, a lot of the lower admirals are appealing to, to Chester Nimitz and Admiral King to do something about it. Well, and what, what I'm working towards is talking about what we talked about at first, which was a reconfiguration of naval air groups on aircraft carriers. So this is from page 379 of Toll's volume three. Nimitz and King gradually gave way to these persistent entreaties from the frontline aviators. They had already revised the standard carrier complement from 18 torpedo bombers, 36 dive bombers, and 36 fighters to, they, they revised it to 18 torpedo bombers and 24 fighter or 24 dive bombers with fighters to capacity. So they, at that point, they kept torpedo bomber numbers the same, started getting rid of dive bombers, and increased fighters to absolute capacity. Because I also found out that the frontline fighter at this point for the Navy was the superb F-6F Hellcat, one of the greatest fighters ever built. They also found out that it could serve quite admirably as a dive bomber in its own right, as could the Corsair. Um, but let's see. 
here's so here's one more sentence. On November 29th, King approved a new standard Essex-class complement of 73 Hellcats, 15 Helldivers, which was the successor to the SBD Dauntless, 15 Helldivers, and 15 Avengers. Executing the change was another question, however. Carrier fighters were in high demand, but the supply was tight. Nimitz told Halsey that he intended to retain a replacement or replenishment pool of F6Fs in Guam, but the sink pack was moved by Halsey's beseeching reply, urgently request that you reconsider. Time is short. Things are already moving. The suicide attack is a grave menace to our carriers and to your future operations, if not countered. More fighters are needed to counter it, and they cannot be found except by reducing number over target or adding to complement. So all that to say the next day, Nimitz reversed his decision, releasing the entire existing pool of replacements, meaning F6S on Guam, for immediate deployment to Task Force 38. But he remained gravely concerned that a shortfall in carrier fighters loomed in early 45. Well, he goes on and on here in, in the text, but what we get to is Marines were then incurred, Marines were then brought out with F4U Corsairs to be part of the carrier force. So you have Marine aviation getting back into the into the flight deck game to help counter the kamikaze threat. And the kamikaze threat's a two front threat you have the threat against the air power obviously they're going to try to shoot down our guys before making their final destination to a ship of their own choosing but you have the naval front you have all this naval inventory out in this open water that's being targeted by guys who basically they're going to give their lives for the empire and hopefully in their minds they're going to take you out with them and so how do you protect your assets? Well, a lot of military strategists, uh, they know their history, and sometimes they go back to the, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And so in this case, it's kind of a modern day, as per 1944-45 day, circle the wagons. And what they ended up doing is putting the most valuable vessel in the middle of the group and kind of encircling the aircraft carriers, whatever the, the, the particular more important ships, they would en encircle them within certain distances based on two things. Obviously the range of the weaponry of each vessel and the radar, they figured out that they can kind of overlap their radar. And so if you have your aircraft carriers, you know, and all your major battle command vessels in the middle then you have your destroyers and then your your screeners and then your little battleships you know things kind of flare out and each one has its radio capabilities depending on its size you can increase your radar range substantially by you know the people in the outer circle are going to pick it up first and so kind of like chess you put the you know you put the smaller faster vessels out on the edge and then as the planes fly over or other naval ships come through that encirclement their interaction with each proceeding level of um the battlefield if you will is going to get bigger and bigger and to kind of give you guys a numerical kind of like henry was saying with the planes uh, the navy had significantly improved its firepower accuracy of its anti-craft weaponry throughout the fleet since the beginning of the war on most ships five inch 38 dual purpose guns um, surpre surpre oh, sorry, sur 
suppressed the 5-inch 25 and 3-inch guns for long-range defense, while 40mm and 20mm automatic cannon batteries replaced the 1.1-inch gun and the 30 and 50 caliber machine guns for short-range coverage. The older weapons were then used to arm merchant and auxiliary vessels, radars and computer equipment, dual-purpose fire detection MK-19s, MK-33s, MK-37s, and the MK-1 analog computers were installed that calculated range and bearing and automatically guided the 5-inch guns on the target. We never really talk about that sort of technology for 1944, 1945. To have somewhat, even though it's analog, to have kind of a semi-automatic ranging system to help Mm -hmm. put these 5-inch guns on target. Because I think a lot of us think when we see the naval guns, we kind of think, oh, that's just a bigger version of the tank. You got guys in their whining wheels and and verbally looking at sights. But no, they had rudimentary analog computers to help sight these. Um, So this is interesting. Battleships at this point in the war had each battleship had 165 barrels. And let me break that down for you so it makes sense. They had 10 5-inch 38 twin 20 and 40 millimeter quad, um, 49 20 millimeter singles, and eight 20 millimeter twin guns. Heavy cruisers had 83 barrels, which breaks down to six 5 inch 38 twins, 12 40 millimeter quads, and 23 20 millimeter single um, uh, gun pieces. Light cruisers had 50 barrels, Uh, large cruisers had 102. Fleet aircraft carriers had 136, which ranged from four 5-inch 38 twins, four 5-inch 38 singles, 17 40-millimeter quads, and 56 20-millimeter single guns. Uh, Light aircraft carriers had 40 barrels. Escort aircraft carriers had 37 barrels. Large aircraft carriers had 158 barrels, breaking down to 18 5-inch 54 singles. 21 40 millimeter quads, 28 20 millimeter twins, and finally the destroyers had 42 barrels coming down to uh, th- three 5 inch 38 twins, three 40 millimeter quads, and two 40 millimeter twins, and 10 20 millimeter twins. And obviously that means twin barrel guns, you know, quad barrels for. And so they had stacked those vessels with as much fire possible firepower as possible to help defend from this new air air weapon by the Japanese known as the kamikaze so all of that and here here one last paragraph I want to read from from tolls to, to add I think it tax on what you just said to these defensive tactics he's referring to repositioning like bringing more carriers into the center of the air group into Mm -hmm. the cruising formation so that the number of fighters over them is increased yep to these defensive tag and also what you're talking about increased firepower uh, with more aa capability to these defensive tactics they added an offensive air striking system called the big blue blanket on strike days the carriers sent big formations of f6f hellcats to patrol over enemy airfields on luzon because in this case we're talking about leading up to the philippines and rotated replacements into the area all day long, thereby maintaining a continuous daylight presence directly over the enemy's lines. Enemy planes taking off or attempting to land were shot down. Thatch, and he was referring to Jimmy Thatch, who was an iconic naval pilot, by then a higher-level commander from days of Coral Sea and Midway, 
Thatch arranged a three-plane strike rotation with launch and recovery times carefully staggered to keep the blanket in place. And we, quote, rolled up quite an impressive total of aircraft destroyed, some in the air, but mostly on the ground, end quote. Um, so to step back from all of that, I mean, what a Herculean effort on the part of the Japanese to counter an irreversible threat from us, but in the end it was all futile. But you look at everything I've pointed out and you've pointed out, the level of effort that went into trying to counter that. And yet it still ended up being a horrific, I mean, you know, I think, uh, didn't, I think in Okinawa, the Navy lost more sailors than at every other battle Yep, because of the kamikaze threat. Um, so it took, I mean, it's so interesting. I mean, it took such a massive repurposing of everything, reimagining, rethinking, re-strategizing, uh, shifting resources around to counter that. Yeah. And just to put a finer point on it, here's a more, um, eloquent way to explain what I was trying to explain. In order to maximize this firepower, the Navy adopted what they call the Circular Task Group Aircraft Disposition with the highest value ships, as I was saying earlier, in the center. And the screen and escorts were deployed in uh, circular layers of an all-around defense in depth. Pure Doctrine 5-inch batteries engaged attacking planes first at ranges of 12,000 yards, or more using the high percentage of VT shells. These guns were expected to be the primary aircraft killers due to their hitting power. Special ammunitions and radar directions, the 40mm and 20mm guns provided close defense with um, massed automatic and air fire beginning around 3,000 to 3,500 yards. And so basically, if as these planes moved in closer and closer, if they got past each level of that security just more and more firepower just open up on them the combination proved um, effective during the battle of the philippine sea in june 1944 where the fast carrier task force tf 58s experienced a well-trained fighter pilots their well-trained fighter pilots downed an estimated 243 of the 373 attacking japanese carrier aircraft against 15 air-to-air combat losses of their own in one day alone. Uh, The mass volume of anti-aircraft fire protecting the TF-58 shot down down and or drove off the few attackers that slipped past the CAP, limiting damage to a single bomb hit on the battleship of South Dakota and a handful of near misses. And so... And the other thing you don't think about, too, is... It kind of, it didn't work in Japan's favor because it allowed us to protect our assets. But I guess if you think about it logistically, now that you have to put so many vessels into this screening operation to protect your important, obviously all vessels are important, but to protect your your most important assets, that's less child operations that can go on. Because now instead of sending more vessels out to do other things, you got all this huge conglomerate being used as a screen and as a defense instead of some of them going on the offense. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's almost like capitalizing our resources. Yeah. It's, it's incredibly interesting. I mean, I'm the other thing I think about Don, when, when I, 
you know, it's, it's like, it seems like through the years and, and I don't claim to be some expert military strategy, but I, I think Never everybody, have. you know, we, we have a, a little working knowledge of it, but look at the beginning of world war two. We just talked about, we had torpedo bombers, fighter bombers, or torpedo bombers, fighters and dive bombers. Well, by the end of the war, the torpedo bombers beginning to become obsolete, although the Avenger was a great airplane and certainly did, did its job well, certainly better than the Devastator. But the dive bomber, they're being pared down because, well, we don't need as many of those because the fighter can also, both the Corsair and the Hellcat can carry and fill that role. So it's like of the triad there, one's kind of going away. You got the fighter. Well, then, you know, by... by you, by the end of the war, it's almost like really all you need is fighters. Well, I'm really oversimplifying this, but I'm, where I'm trying to go with this is look at the present military. I mean, you know, it's like the, when was it that the, the military started making a push for the, you know, one one jet to do it all? Like they wanted sure. the F-35 supposed to be the, you know, it'd yeah. be a ground attack aircraft. You'd be a superiority fighter. You'd be a interceptor. I mean, it's like they, they want to just keep choking it down. And, you know, it's it's. uh well, I think a lot of a lot of that has to do with current price of technology. When these damn planes are getting, they're oh, yeah. packed with so much technology that the price point on them are getting so astronomical. You almost have to say, okay, do we want Y amount of the older planes or X amount of the newer planes? Well, let's phase right. out the older plane. And so the price point, I'm sure, has a significant amount to do with that. But uh, to your point. And I wish Jeff was here because he's the only one between the three of us with actually has military service. And could probably speak to this better than we can, but the military branches are always changing based on their current um, station. We all remember like a year and a half ago, two years ago, the Marine Corps said, hey, we're done with armor. Yeah. It's, it's not conducive to what we're training for, what we plan on being used for. The Army has a foothold. You know, if we need armor, the Army can comp- provide it. We're going to reallocate our funding and our personnel from the Armor Corps into other areas that we feel that we need to um, dedicate assets to. And so things are constantly changing, and it's interesting. And it kind of makes sense when you have as many different branches as we do. It's like, well, and as I learned when I went to California to go to school for computers in 2002, there was a guy in my class who was actually an active Marine. He taught the same stuff we we're going to school for in the Marine Corps as far as computer networking, but his Marine certifications meant nothing in the private sector. And he had about a year left before he was done with his service, and so he was basically taking the civilian exams on all the stuff that he was teaching the Marine Corps just so that when he retired, he could go into the private sector and have all the certifications. And the crazy thing was is, I learned from him that out of all the branches, the Marine Corps is the worst funded. And this was that doesn't surprise me. This was in 2002. Yeah, I was in California. Windows XP had been out for a while. Uh, Windows 2000 had already been out for quite a while. So Windows XP was replacing Windows 2000. Mm. Windows 2000 server was still. The cat's meow, but 2003 was well in development and would take it over quickly. At the time, if you know your Windows versions, the Marine Corps was still using Windows 3.1. Wow. Which I think came out prior to Windows 95. So, <laughs> that show, and this is in 2001, he was telling us 
that they were still using Windows 3.1, which was the precursor to Windows 95. It's kind of always been that way. Which meant that they were 11 years behind on their computer technology and availability because of the costs associated with licensing and rolling out software. Mm-hmm. And so when you got to take your budget into consideration, especially when it comes to, you know, vehicles. And so it's, it's just an ever changing ever. I bet, you know, I bet DJ, DJI or whatever that drone manufacturer company, I bet they could have never foreseen being one of the most widely used weapon systems in the Ukrainian war Yeah, on, on both sides. And just because the show, Sometimes you get you got to make changes and well, you, you have to adapt. Yeah, absolutely, adapt and overcome. So it's it's interesting and, and on the kamikaze thing, that's all I've I had really had time to really pinpoint and kind of. I mean, I actually read those pages probably right before we went on vacation and continued. I'm up to I've only got. Uh, probably a couple hundred pages left, uh, if even that, in volume three here. But reading that, it just it just hit me. I thought, well, that, that could be an interesting topic for a show one night. You know, it's interesting, too, is every once in a while we like to add modern-day World War II news to our podcast. And we hear this a lot with the Marines and the PTO about bodies getting recovered. Um, Dateline, May 19th, so just about a week ago. U.S. identifies remains of World War soldier, World War II soldier who vanished in 1944. Authorities has identified the remains of World War II tank crew member from Tennessee who was killed with his M4 Sherman tank as it was hit by an 80 millimeter round during a battle near uh, Gay J is probably pronounced G E Y Germany in December 1944. The defense, the defense POW MIA accounting agency said in a news release. Scientists used ortho, orthopological analyst, DNA analyst, and, um, and other evidence to determine the remains exhumed from the Ardennes American Cemetery in Belgium where those of 23-year-old Joe A. Vineyard were finally identified, officials said. The agency said that Vineyard was fighting with the 774th Tank Battalion when, German attacked, when, Germany's, when Germans attacked his unit. Crew members fled the tank, but after uh, regrouping, Vineyard was missing. One crew member reported seeing your Vineyard leave the tank, but he still wasn't found several days later. No remains were found within the burnt-out tank, the agency said. Germans, however, never reported Vineyard as a prisoner of war. Finally, in April 1946, the War Department issued a presumptive finding of death. Um, In December 1950, Vineyard was declared, uh, quote, non-removable, End quote. After the American Grave Registration Command, the agency tasked with locating missing Americans in Europe determined that the remains found within two destroyed tanks in J could not be identified. Years later, the DPAA historian study studying unresolved American losses in the Hurtgen area discovered that one of the remains could have been vineyard, the agency said. The remains were sent to Nebraska for analysis and the scientists were able to determine a match. Vineyard will be buried in um, Maryville, Tennessee, the agency said. Defense POW MIA accounting agency who works to recover the remains of missing soldiers. The agency has accounted for 
four missing World War II soldiers since the work began in 1973. Government figures show that more than 72,000 World War II soldiers are still missing to this day. That is a tremendous amount of missing personnel. It, it is. I had no idea it was that. I didn't, I didn't have any idea it was that high either. And so here's to... Here's to all the people who are still actively searching or um, who are available to people when remains are in question or found who take up the arduous task of uh, identifying and then once identifying, trying to locate any living next to Ken to try to give the family, you know, a little bit of closure on the loss of their loss and missing of their loved ones, especially after all these years. And so... You know, sad story, but good. And at the end, that he will finally be buried back amongst his peers in his home state. And um, I know with what you're reading, I'm still in the same book. Um, I think you're probably still in the same book. What, what are you? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still reading I'm, like said, Four I'm, Hours I'm, of Fury. Okay, I'm um, making my way. We, you know, we went on vacation last week, and I've got a good bit done on that. It's uh, so, some nights done. I'm so tired. I get to read about two pages and then I'm, I'm nodding off and mm-hmm. then I got to get up and go do the work thing. And, you know, but, uh, but I'm really enjoying this one. I'm, I'm not sure what I'm going to tackle next. I've got some ideas, but I haven't decided yet. There is the occasion. It's happened a few times where I'm man enough to lay my credibility on the line to admit that there's certain books I haven't read or certain movies I haven't seen. That some people are like, wow, you you haven't seen that? And I unplugged. I cut the cord. I moved away from the evil corporation known as Comcast. And I'm now streaming different movies, shows, documentaries, and whatnot through a plethora of free and non-free services. And the nice thing about the free ones is they have a lot of old stuff up there. Yeah, I started watching the other night. It's a long, it's a long run. I haven't watched it in entirety, but I have got to say, not making a judgment on the movie because I've only seen the first twenty minutes. But I would love to have been on set for the production, at least of when they. It could have been military exercise. It could have been done for the production of this movie. To me, it's the most realist jump sequence I have ever seen. And that is the opening jump sequence of A Bridge Too Far. Holy hell, that's awesome. Really? When's the last time I mean, you've seen A, a Bridge Too Far? Uh, it's been a long time. I mean, I haven't seen this since I was a kid. You're uh, going to go back and watch it now, especially after seeing the airborne jump sequence on D-Day of Band of Brothers, how kind of cool that was. Yeah. Henry, I swear to God, unless this was like repurposed military color training film, mm-hmm. they had plane upon plane. I mean, the airport scene, you can see there's like f- probably 50 real planes, and then you can kind of see because a lot of the stuff wasn't designed for HDTV. It was made for, for movies back in the day. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of tell there was a painted background of more planes. That's fine. When they were jumping, they had guys literally with – camera systems on their chest and you can hear them breathing and you can see them flipping. It seems like, 
unless it was repurposed military training video. And if you guys know, please email us at mail call at WTSP world war com. If not, if they did this for the production of this movie, the jump sequences, real people, real sticks jumping out of real planes, complete with three or four of them having cameras mounted on their chest. So you can see them hit the ground and actually hear them go. Ugh. The jump sequence on this is just, it's amazing. Hmm. Uh, make me want to see it. When was this produced? Was that one of? Uh, was that another like all star cast? Yes, Bridge Too Far was um, 1977. Okay, I didn't know it was that. I thought it was older than that. Let's see here, Bridge Too Far. Um, yeah, this is the who's who of like 70s, 80s movie actors. John Wayne, Henry Fonda, Robert Mitchum. I'm just throwing names out. I don't know. Hold on. Sean Connery. Yes. Um, well, now. Mike Cocaine. You can't win them all. The fun thing about Michael Caine, if you say it fast enough, it sounds like you're saying Mike Cocaine. Michael <laughs> Caine. Michael Caine. Um, it's not my real name. <laughs> nope. Paul Maxwell, Sean Connery, Ryan O'Neill, Gene Hackman, Walter uh, Couch, Peter Farber, Hurtman Becker, Frank Grimes, Jenry Kemp, Donald Pinking, I'm sorry, uh, Pickering, Donald Douglas, uh, Peter Stellan, Stephen Moore, Edward Fox, Michael Kane, Mike Cocaine, <laughs> Michael Byron, Anthony Hopkins was in it, Paul Copley, Nicholas Campbell, James Kahn, Gerald uh, Sims, Harry Ditson, Eric. I mean, the name just goes on and on. But, I, I, like, just, I think I saw it on, maybe it was on uh, Pluto or Freebie, one of them. Just watch the first 20 minutes. And when they start doing the jump sequence, it's amazing. Because like I said, you actually see them coming, falling from the plane. Their shoots deploying. You actually see them when they go on the plane. They have all the, all the, um, I always just assume because I never packed a parachute that, you know, the, the system that they hook to the static line that goes down mm. is all, was already, no, according to this movie, they show them all laid out on the bench. So that when they got on the plane, they grabbed it, attached it to the part on their reserve chute, I mean, on their pack, and then held it in their hands. Um, yeah, just, I'm going to watch the rest of the entire movie, but A Bridge Too Far. Yeah, you're making me want to see it now. That's and there's so... a scene I saw, there's a scene on there, There's uh, one of the British sol airborne soldiers has a chicken. You're like, why would he have a chicken <laughs> in his, in his, um, in his pack? Well, it turns out that was a brief nod. They don't explain it. But it was a brief nod to Merrill, the parrot chicken, in the Battle of the Ar Arnhem. Uh, September uh, marks the 75th anniversary of World War II Operation Market Garden during which a hen named Myrtle parachuted into the Battle of Arnhem with the British 1st Airborne Division. Apparently, this chicken was the British Airborne Division's mascot, and it had made a few other jumps. <laughs> and But, yeah... Um, it didn't fare too well in the operation <laughs> market garden. Let's just say that it was one of its last last jumps. So if you're wondering why there is a chicken in one of the British airborne um, guys' haversack on the plane, that's a nod to Myrtle, the the chicken. <laughs> yep. But uh, So check that out if you haven't seen it. Like I said, I can't say for the entire movie if it's great, if it's accurate. Just if they... If they filmed that jump sequence for that movie and it wasn't like training video from the 
you know, color training video, they put a lot of time, energy, and effort because they couldn't just hire people to jump. They had to hire, you know, certified parachutists to do that jump. And there wasn't just four guys that they replicated with a computer. I mean, it was, I mean, they do a wide shot and you just see parachute after parachute after parachute. And you see all the planes flying in the V and them all just coming out. And in 1977, they did not have that sort of computer technology to fake that. And that, sure. that scene yeah. in and of itself is fantastic. And so I'm looking forward to watching the rest of that movie. You got anything? Well, you make me want to dig that out and watch it. Yep. Dig that out. Maybe, even, maybe when it starts cooling off. Didn't Cornelius Ryan write the book, A Bridge Too Far, along with The Longest Day? I don't know. Let's find out. A bridge. A bridge. Bridge. To. Well, I can't type today, which is crazy because I typed 12 hours a day. The book, Bridge Too Far. Da, 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 da. Bridge Too Far. Yes, you're correct. You, like, win the prize for, like, author to book recognition. Recon yep, Cornelius Ryan, Bridge Too Far. I've told you I've seen a questionnaire that my uncle... John yes. McMahon has sent me a picture of it because he unearthed it in the archives that Cornelius Ryan sent to my uncle, along with, obviously, thousands of soldiers that he knew had been in combat at D-Day. And it was asking, in my uncle's handwriting, where he answered these questions. Do you still have that? I haven't. Uh, I have an image of it. John yeah. McMahon has sent me an image. Send it, me that image maybe, so we can put it up on our, our website. I need to, like, come and push it on. I, I need to do that. Yeah. Pushing on toward fall. When the weather starts cooling off, we get back into talking ETO stuff, you know, which not that we don't talk about it during the summer, but, you know, you know how it is. When it's warmer, I focus on the Pacific. When it's cooler, we kind of move to the ETO. Yeah, it's hard to make... put yourself in a foxhole in the Battle of the Bulge when you just walked in from on the grass in 98 degree weather. Yeah, ex exactly. But but I've been wanting to dig that file that he sent me. It's it's on, It's on an image of it and, and read that on air one night because it's really interesting. I mean, it's... Things I wish I could go back and ask my uncle, who was a tank platoon commander in 741st Tank Battalion, as as you know, but probably our listeners may have heard me say, but just, it was really interesting. You know, that's one of my regrets, too, as somebody who finds themselves in this position now, that my grandfather passed away, I think, in 2002, who, as we've said many times before, did grave registration over in Europe. If I would have had the in-depth interest and knowledge back then so that I could have sat down and talked to him in depth about where he was and what he did in a way that wouldn't, um, you know, bring up the, the bad side of stuff. But Sure. Here's kind of a cool note. I've often give credit to my friend Danny Eaton's father, who was a gunny sergeant in the Marine Corps when I grew up in elementary school. I've often said we lived in a neighborhood called Steeplechase, which was the old military housing around Rickenbacker Air Force Base on the southwest side of Columbus, Ohio, who was named after the World War I Air Force Ace Rickenbacker. Mm -hmm. At this time, it was a minimum Air Force base, had air shows every year. It's basically a, a, a stopping point for other aircraft as they're going to more in-use bases to refuel and stopping points. But now I think it's completely closed down. I think it's a FedEx base. But um, <clears throat> I give Danny's dad a lot of credit to my interest in a lot of the stuff, along with my grandfather. I just found out Danny just won for like the second year of the road. 
top three journalists in the state of Ohio. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of it's kind of that, that's amazing, and it's also nice to know that you know there's still some people trying to keep journalism alive. So he just won another award for top three journalist in the entire state of Ohio. So that's that's oh, cool that's to hear, cool. especially in a long line of our appreciation for people who um, put pen to ink. And so uh, congratulations to him. I think it's about going to wrap it up for this episode, the comeback episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. We want to thank each and every one of you for your continued support. And if you haven't done so, please head to YouTube.com, find our channel. You can look for it at Digital 410 or D410 Media. Either way, it'll find us. Please like, subscribe, and uh, view some of our videos. You can watch us stream live every Monday. And Or if you're currently watching a stream and watching our videos in chunks and you want to download the entire show and listen to it in your car, the bathroom, jogging, at work, wherever you find time to listen to audio format, please download us through whatever app you like. And if you're currently listening and downloading us through the Apple Podcast app, please give us a five-star rating and a nice review so that Apple will suggest us to other people who listen to like content. And that's a nice way to get our name out there and getting us out amongst the world. Henry, do you have anything coming down the line? Well, it's, uh, I guess it's getting closer um, ever so slowly to September when I will be going to England to be part of the We Have Ways History Festival, nice. which is the James Holland History Festival. He, he actually has a couple, but that is one. He invited me to it, um, and my... They're going to fly me over there, but I'm going to take my wife and son at Fantastic. my expense, you know, because sure. I want them to go too. But, and we'll probably, my, my wife and Layton's wife will probably hang out and then Jack and I'll go to the history festival and ride around on some tanks and Layton will be there. And, uh, you know, that, so that should be cool. Um, well, the good news, every third person in the world hosts a podcast. So while you're over there, just stand on a chair and say, who's got a closest studio? And then hit me up and we'll we'll do an episode while you're over there. You can borrow someone's well, studio. And, yeah, and... I mean, it's September 8th, 9th, 10th, you know, something like that. We've still got all the details have yet to be worked out. But I emailed James Holland and said, I just want to make sure, you, you know, you invited me. I just want to make sure you want me to come. He emailed me right back. Yes, I absolutely do. And looking forward to it, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so more to come on that. That's, I guess, in September. But um, I don't want to get too far into it. I had a conversation with another or another conversation with the Library of Congress person today. Um, also, Matt Leach, our, our buddy Matt Leach, you know, Layton's friend, we happy few. Uh, 506. He was Sergeant Talbot in Band mm-hmm. of Brothers. Matt called me a couple of weeks ago. We conversed about this. There's possibility of a symposium at the Library of Congress early 24, um, of which I would be, uh, of what they're telling me, I would be a significant part of that. That is still very early in the planning stages. Um, and that is a separate conversation from what I have already mentioned to you before about them having an interest in my father's Bible. Sure. So I don't know where that will lead to or end up, but, um, but I can tell you they're interested in a symposium type event early 24, uh, more to come on that. That that's, that's about it right now, man. I'm still slugging away on my, 
second draft of the book. Only thing coming my way in 2024. I mean, we've got some events coming up. It's been a light summer for me. Um, but starting next year, I'm not going to let any cats out of the bag yet. But um, there's a huge event that happens every year down here in Florida, World War II event, that the existing two organizers are kind of stepping away because they're getting up there in age, and they have asked um, me and two of my um, companions in the Florida World War II community if we would take over this event. And so starting in 2024, I will be one of the primary three organizers of this huge event, which will be interesting, and I'll have to bend Jeff's ear a lot because he's organized a lot of living history events. This one's well-established and well-maintained, um, but maybe having some new blood into it will help build it because it has been uh, swaying back. Well, the entire community has been swaying back and forth since since the pandemic and the numbers aren't where they once were. And so sure. maybe we can come up with new ideas to get more people in attendance. And so I will actually be taking an active role and at least organizing one of the major uh, living history events here in Florida. So that's, will be interesting and see how that plays out. But I think that's going to do it for this episode of the what's the scuttlebutt podcast. And if you like my shirt, or all the awesome WTSP shirts that you see Jeff or Henry or our friends and families wearing on Instagram or Facebook or what have you, head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click the icon at the top that says Back the Attack, and I'll take you to our merch tent, and you can get shirts and coffee mugs and stickers and jackets and all kinds of fun stuff, and all that goes a long way to help promote what we do here at the show. And uh, for myself... Jeff and Henry, we want to say thank you to each and every one of you who tune in and download each week. Um, you guys make it all worthwhile, and we will talk to you all next week. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>